Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7. Briefly tonight, we'd like to look at the remainder of this chapter. Now, we began this Wednesday night, and I want us to look at the remainder of this tonight. There are actually three parts to chapter 7. One is the sealing of the 144,000. The second is the great multitude that no man can number. And the third is the power of the blood. This is a great, great chapter. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray thou wilt help us as we study again this great vision that was given by the Lord Jesus to John so that we could understand a little bit better about what's going to happen in the end days. Open our hearts and our eyes spiritually. We pray that everyone in this place will hear that word of God beyond the voice of the preacher. We'll look up and know that our redemption draweth nigh. In the name of Jesus, amen. We begin tonight in verse 9. We already discussed last Wednesday night the sealing of the 144,000. And we mentioned that some feel that this is those who worship on Saturday. The 144,000 are those who worship on Saturday. There are others who believe the 144,000 are those who do not smoke cigarettes. Now you may laugh at that. I read that in a commentary. Some group believe that. And then there are others that believe they're the only ones that will occupy heaven. There's a whole religious group that believe that. But the clear teaching of Scripture is that these are Jews. 144,000, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from another. And what are they going to do? They're going to preach the gospel during the tribulation. Those who are in the church, the Gentile church, and that's what we are. There are some Jews that are saved today, but they're part of the Gentile church, the bride of Christ. And one day when the rapture comes, we'll be caught away to be with the Lord. And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Oh, what's going to happen here on earth? There'll still be, still be millions of people here that'll not be caught up. And they'll be worshiping the image of the beast, according to chapter 13, when we get there. Well, God always has a plan. And his plan in this parenthetical chapter 7 is to say to us, here's what I'm going to do during the tribulation. I'm going to raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and the word of God will come to the world through the Jews again. Before the church, how did the Word of God come to the people in Moses' day, in Jeremiah's day, in Isaiah's day? It didn't come through the Gentiles, it came through the Jews. And the Jewish people, their prophets, their temple, their priests gave out the Word of God. And then when Jesus came, those who put their trust and faith in Him became the church. Now the church, the term ecclesia, has two definitions. 
Ekklesia means called out ones, called out from the world under Christ. Ekklesia refers primarily in the Bible to the local autonomous church, church at Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Rome, the church at Tarsus, the church at, 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 uh, at, uh, at uh, Tarsus, the, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, and so on. Those were all local churches. And we as Baptists believe today that we are in the spiritual train of those early churches that believed and practiced what the New Testament believed and practiced. The other term for church is the same word, ecclesia, and it refers to the whole body of Christ as seen from heaven, not from earth. You and I cannot tell. The local business clearinghouse for God today in the world is the local autonomous church. But when Jesus comes, the church without spot or wrinkle will be caught up together with the Lord and we'll ever be with the Lord. And down here on earth, those 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be evangelizing. They'll be telling people how to be saved. And there'll be two witnesses, according to chapter 11, that will help them and be with them in it. And then the tide will turn against them and they'll be slain. They'll lie, lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three days and then God's going to raise them up. And there'll be a rapture of those two individuals. <laughs> to God be the glory. It's wonderful to look forward to. Well, God has not left himself without a witness. Today, in the tribulation, and all through history. Now we come to that multitude, the multitude. Would you look in verse 9? After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on the fa their faces and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered saying unto me, What are these? which are arrayed in white robes, and whence come they? And I said to them, to him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now nothing could be clearer than that. People make a hard thing out of the Scripture when they decide that it can't be taken literally. I want you to notice this great multitude that no man can number. I did a study on what people think that great multitude is. Some people say they are the people who live in the flesh on earth, different nationalities who have been saved by trusting Christ. Others say, this is a vast host of disembodied spirits 
souls of dead people whom John saw in heaven. Still others say the redeemed of the Lord who are resurrected and glorified and now in glory. Still others say the early primitive Christians who were martyrs in the first century. Others say this represents the triumph of the Christian faith after the conversion of Constantine and the liberty Christians had then. Still others say this was those added to the church following the conversion of the Roman Caesar. And others say this group is the same as the 144,000 of the first group. And still others say this is the church in the millennial glory. Others say this doesn't represent anything except the triumph of the gospel message. Now I want you to look at it carefully. And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and they cried with a loud voice, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne. Now, if you look back in the earlier chapter, when we read about the great uh, people who have gone on to be with the Lord and they, they, they have been killed during the tribulation. They've been martyred. And they say, how long, O Lord? John sees the, seems to look under the altar and he sees this group and they're crying out, how long, O Lord? I believe they're the same group. Nobody could number how many there were. Now we don't know, and I don't want to be dogmatic in saying this, but I, as I see it, it seems like these are those who were martyred for the faith of Christ. Now notice some things about these. They have been washed in the blood and have made their uh, garments white in the blood. A great number. Would you help me for a moment as we think about the power of the blood of Christ? Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. William Copper was so defeated, so discouraged, he wanted to commit suicide. And he started to do it. And somebody told him to read a verse in the Bible about the blood. And he read it. And he received Christ. And then he wrote that great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. And William Copper was saved. He didn't kill himself. He went on to give us other great hymns and songs. There's power in the blood of Christ. Now notice these had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now this is, an, this is a paradox. You take wicked, filthy sin and wash it in red, crimson blood and what happens to it? It becomes white as snow. That's a paradox. How could that be? Faith claims it. The word of God says it. And whether I believe it or not, that settles it. And so 
we've had our sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. Now listen, what does this mean for us? It means that if you've sinned, and all of us have, and the devil comes and tries to throw that sin in your teeth and tries to make you discouraged and defeated about it and say, look here, you can't go to heaven with that kind of sin. You point him to go back to hell where he belongs and you claim the blood of Jesus Christ. They overcame him with the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto death. They were washed in the blood. There are a lot of paradoxes. Jesus said you die to live. The way up is the way down. You wash in the scarlet blood of the Son of God and you become white as snow. By nature, our robes are filthy. Not one person here tonight who doesn't have filthy robes. All our righteousness are like filthy rags. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And try as hard as we may, we still have an old nature that craves to sin. What do we do about it? We take it to Jesus. And the prophet cries out from 800 years before Jesus, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You think of the blood when Cain killed Abel and God came in the cool of the evening and said, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? That might be called a rhetorical question, but the eternal answer is yes. Yes. You and I are the keeper of our brothers. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God caused a blood sacrifice to wash away the sin. It was a symbol. He took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve. We live in a strange day where everybody wants to take all their clothes off. And uh, if they're a little bit modest and they don't want to take them all off, they take most of them off. Like Chris was talking about a while ago. Well, that's different. God's people don't do that. We want to hide our nakedness. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. And when Cain killed Abel, there was another blood, blood sacrifice. And on and on way through the, through the scripture, the Lord set up the sacrificial system in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in the holy place, there was a, an ark, like a, like a chest, simply, something like this communion table. Only it was, it was not open, it was solid. And uh, there were doors into it. And in that ark, there was a copy of the Ten Commandments. There was a golden pot of manna taken from the wilderness wanderings. And there was Aaron's rod that budded. It was overlaid with gold. It is estimated that the gold on that mercy seat was worth 90,000s of dollars in our terms today. And once a year, the priest would go beyond the veil. Nobody else could do this. He was the high priest. 
He would go beyond the veil and he would offer a blood sacrifice on that mercy seat and the cherubs and seraphs that were there representing the presence of God and God received that as a symbol of something was yet to come. These are all examples that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice these things concerning the blood. Number one, the blood restores our interrupted relationship with God. Now sin separates between God and man, but the blood erases that separation. The blood interrupts that thing. And God says, I accept you, not because you're good, not because you joined a certain church or got baptized a certain way, but because you've pled the blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. Number two, the blood wins forgiveness of our past sins. We were in slavery to sin. Now there are some here tonight who may be still in slavery to sin. The blood of Christ wants to cancel that. Charles Wesley on his first anniversary of Christian wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. You know what that means? You're held in bondage and sin like the chains and you got saved and somehow you, you still feel enslaved to this thing. But Jesus comes along and breaks the power and of those fetters and sets the prisoner free. You're free. You're free in Christ. And Paul reminded us we're free. We, we have liberty in Christ, but don't let that liberty be a cause of stumbling to somebody else. I've heard some Christians say, you can't tell me how to live. I don't care anything about this separated living deal. I'll drink when I want to and I'll cuss when I want to. I'll do whatever I want to do. And do you know what? They're free to do it. But how displeasing to God. And at the end of the way, if they're really saved, it will be so as by fire and just a rusty old halo. But that same freedom that breaks the bondage of our old sins gives us liberty to overcome. And we can go on with Christ. That's the blood. That's what the blood does. And these had their, their garments washed in the blood. The blood makes possible peace with God. In, Roman, in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the peace of God and the peace with God. You know before you're saved, and if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you don't have peace with God. You may think you do, but God has a whole lot against you. I heard somebody say one time, we talked about this, and somebody said, well, I don't have anything against God. Well, God has a whole lot against you. In his book are all of our sins, all of our works. They're all there unless they're eradicated by the blood. And so the blood cleanses us from all sin and it makes possible peace with God. Number four, blood purges 
men from the power and evil that made him yield. The blood is a purgatory, a, a purging thing, and it purges us. Have you heard, Mrs. Garvin used to say this a lot, and Miss Madge Smith, plead the blood. You remember, remember her saying that? Plead the blood. What that meant was, when you're in problems, and you're in spiritual problems, and you seem like you're getting overwhelmed by the devil, just plead the blood. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Then he says, the blood must be appropriated. Now there's where it hurts. You see, people are not saved automatically because of what Christ did on the cross. And sometimes uh, doctrines that are, are um, lifted out of the scripture and, and, and sort of scrutinized and made to seem systematic would say, well, uh, you know, I guess if you'd have to class me between Arminianism and Calvinism, I'd be a Calvinist. But I'm really a Biblicist. The Calvinists go too far. They say that the atonement was only for a certain group. I don't believe that. I believe it's for everybody. Whosoever will may come. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins, but we have to appropriate it. There are churches today of other denominations that believed right. They believed the scripture right. And they got hold of this, this doctrine of predestination. And I believe in predestination and election, foreknowledge, and so on. But they got hold of that. And they said, uh, well, if God knows everything and God predestines a plan for everybody, then he must leave some people out. This is called double-edged predestinarianism. And it says, therefore, God elects some to heaven, God elects others to hell. Brother, there's not anything in the Bible that says that. The Bible says, it is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so some churches that have focused on that come to a time where they don't even talk about being born again. They say, if God wants you, he'll save you and you don't have to do a thing about it. And we just will train you a little bit and teach you a little bit. And if you're one of God's elect, it, he'll come in and you don't have anything to say about it at all. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. People reject Christ. They rejected him when he was here. People receive Christ. And these in this chapter are those who had received Christ and were willing to stand for him. So the blood has to be appropriated. Jesus poured it all out on Calvary. He shed his life's blood. Now we don't go back, and I hope you'll understand, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we don't go back to Calvary. When we go to Jerusalem, we don't go to Golgotha and look down there and find some old blood stains on the ground and pick them up and rub them on us and say, I've been washed by the blood. It isn't that at all. It's faith. It's faith that what Jesus did there was enough for all eternity. And when we appropriate what he did on the cross as enough to cover our sins, he forgives us 
and he saves us. And that's what these folks did. Now the question tonight is, are you washed in the blood? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood? If you are, and you get defeated and discouraged, what do you do about it? You go make a beeline to the cross. Jesus paid it all, past, present, future. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that's the reason Bible-believing Christians all over the world would say you can only be saved one time. You can be bought by the blood of Christ one time. Christ comes into our heart. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. A mother may forsake her, her little child, but I'll never forsake you. And even in the heat of the tragedy of the Old Testament when the Jews had so wickedly sinned against God, in Hosea we read, all day long have I held my hand out. Oh, how can I give you up? Come, come. And the song we sang earlier, Lord, I'm coming home. Lord, I'm coming home. This is for believers who have wandered away from God. Lord, I'm coming home. Why do you want to come home? Because Christ puts that desire inside. You see, you can sin as a believer, but it's going to hurt your heart. And if you get so cold and callous that it doesn't hurt your heart anymore, God will send somebody to you because he loves you. If you won't listen to that, God will begin to arrange circumstances where there will be the disciplining hand of God, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye be without chastisement, where all, all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You got in some other way. And if you won't listen to that disciplining, God has to have an early funeral. First John 5, 16, there is a sin that a brother can commit that is unto death, I do not say you should pray for that one. So you see, a saved person can never be lost after he's saved. The whole word of God would have to be changed. The blood saves forever. Mordecai Ham was preaching in a great revival meeting in Louisville many years ago. And right in the middle of his message, he said something about saved. And he said, I was saved. And some man stood up and he said, I'm saved, saved, saved. And he wrote out of, went out of that building and wrote the song, saved by his power divine, saved to new life sublime. My life now is sweet for my joy is complete for I'm saved, saved, saved. And these people were, their sins were under the blood. Where are your sins tonight? Are they in your mind bothering you? Does the devil cast them into your teeth? Or do you send him to the cross? And say, oh, devil, look what Jesus did. You tried to keep him from doing it, but he went to the cross for my sins, and I trusted him, and he's my savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of this book. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We pray that tonight someone who has never been saved would come to Christ and others who are God's children would take a stand for the Lord and love you and serve you. God grant that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. What are we saying?
361, pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art passing, do not pass me by. Here's the invitation. Number one, if you're here and you're not saved, please tonight come to Christ. Don't reject him, don't turn him down. Come with your sins and your sorrow and your hurt, just come to him. Then, if you are saved, are you serving him? Are you serving him like he wants you to? Are you serving him where he wants you to? There are some here tonight need to move their letter to this church, start actively being part of Glendale Baptist Church. Do what God tells you to do. There are others that God is calling into his special service. He wants you to preach or be a missionary or serve in some capacity in his church. Thank God we've had a large number of men and women who have said, God has called me while I'm in Bowling Green to serve the Lord here. And you've become pillars in God's church. God bless you. Do what God tells you to do while we sing.